on this morning, what's on my heart is this idea that God knows your heart. And I know that's not a new idea to you, but I'm hoping to come at it maybe from a perspective that you haven't thought of before. Um, <clears throat> the Bible says some really um, just kind of stops my heart, actually, this idea about God. Let me just show you in a few verses. In Luke 11 is the story of Jesus where some people were saying, talking about Jesus and saying, oh, he must be casting demons out by the power of Satan. He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But it says, but he knew their thoughts and said to them, and he, and he had an answer for them because he knew their thoughts. And Jeremiah describes G uh, God as the Lord of hosts who see the mind and the heart. In the Psalm 139, it describes God as, Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. And here Isaiah sums it up, for I know their works. Obviously God sees what we do. We see what each other does, but he also knows their thoughts. That is something you might say, well, duh, yeah, I know that. But have you really ever just sat with that for a minute and, and let it pour over you and wash over you and meditated on that and thought about what does that mean that God knows my thoughts? If you could have any superpower, what would you choose? Would you want to fly? Would you want to be able to snap your fingers and be somewhere else? Would you want to, I don't know, what are the superpowers? We want to be able to walk through walls or have, um, you know, light beams come out of your fingers. Would you want to be able to read people's minds? Personally, I would not. <laughs> that I would really rather not know what everyone is thinking. It's bad enough that you kind of think you know what people are thinking and you're usually wrong. But what if you were right? I wouldn't want to know. And I am really, really glad that none of you here can read my mind. My thoughts sometimes express my struggles sometimes express my sinfulness, sometimes express things that I would, I want to be cleansed and healed and I don't want anyone to know. But the thing is, there is someone who knows. I am completely exposed. There is someone who I cannot hide a single thought, a single struggle, a single impulse, a single feeling from. So the question is, is that a good thing? Or is that a bad thing? How does that make you respond? Does that, do you respond with feelings of fear about that? That, oh my goodness, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with that much exposure. What will God think of me? Can he love me? If he knows everything going on in my mind and my heart? Or do you respond to that as, then God must be the safest place in the universe for me? because he knows. So I would like to sit with this. I would like to meditate on this with you for this morning. I'd like to look at some stories in the Bible where people did the same thing and God responded differently.
You might not have come at it from this angle before, thought of it this way before, but I'd like to really think about these stories and what they show about God and what it's like to have a relationship with Him and ask ourselves, what do these stories tell me about how God treats people, about how I treat people, and let these stories build your ability to be open with God and to trust God, to move from a fear response to a safe response with God. So let's jump in. I've always been, um, I don't know, kind of struck by the, this story at the beginning of Jesus' life where uh, Zacharias came to the temple out after, was it 400 years of silence? No prophet, no word from God, and suddenly out of the blue, he's the guy. Out of the blue, he's the one that God speaks to again and has a vision. And God tells him that his postmenopausal wife is going to have the baby that they've longed for all their lives. And his response is, how will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, what you're telling me is physically impossible. I'm not quite sure what to do with this, this information, this message you've just given me. And God's response to him is um, a little bit disciplinary. It's a little bit of, um, uh, you're not going to now talk because your response lacked faith. So we're not going to allow you to speak <laughs> unfaith um, until this baby's born. <clears throat> then an angel goes to Mary, who's going to bear the Messiah, and tells her the same thing. You're going to have a baby, Mary. And she has what to me seems like the same response. How shall this be since I have no husband? She also says, this is physically impossible. I'm not quite sure what you're telling me. When I read these stories, it seems to me that these two people have basically the same response to the angel's message that you're going to have a baby, even though it's impossible. But Mary is not silenced. Mary is simply told, you're blessed, don't worry, the Holy Spirit's, don't worry, I've got this covered, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you, you know. And God's response, God's way of handling each of these people is very different. So you could interpret this different ways, but when I sit with this, okay, here's the thing about the Bible, and we're going to find this with all of these stories. I have come to, or I, I, I've been learned from some videos that I've watched, that ancient Hebrew writing and the way that the Bible is written, stories are told often without a lot of detail and without commentary. So a story is just told and it's up to you to sort of fill in the gaps with the rest of what you know from the Bible. Like Isaiah says, truth comes here a little and there a little. So it challenges your mind. It gets you to search the scriptures and get your mind into the scriptures, soak them in so that you can then fill in the gaps with the interpretation, understand if this is good or bad, what this person did, how God might see it, that kind of thing. And as I sit with this story and put the rest of the Bible into the picture, it seems to me that the only conclusion you can come to is God knew their hearts. He knew what attitude these responses were coming with. He knew what, what spring they were welling up out of. And so he knew the response that each of them needed. 
You could interpret this as, well, God is random and unfair. You could interpret this as God has favorites. You could interpret this as God is erratic and unpredictable. These are all lies that Satan would like to turn your mind to. But if you put the whole picture of the Bible together, you realize that God knows and understands people's hearts and people's needs. Now that is a God I can trust. Let's look at another story that fascinates me too. When Lazarus died and had been in the grave for four days, his two sisters, Mary and Martha, who were close friends with Jesus and had let him stay at their house before, had sent word to him because he had healed other people. Wouldn't he heal his one of his best friends? And uh, they had asked Jesus to come and minister to their their brother, but Jesus didn't come. And Lazarus died. Their brother died, and it was confusing to them. Why would he heal people he doesn't even know and not help out his good friends? And so when Jesus finally, but Jesus, of course, saw the big picture and had a, a better plan. Um, but when he came, Martha had the first conversation with him, and she said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then later, when her sister Mary came to him, in my version of the Bible, it is word for word exactly the same thing that she said to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But what's interesting to me in this story is how Jesus responded to these two women, these two sisters. Because when Martha told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, he gave her a big long talk about the resurrection. He ministered to her intellect and her mind. And he, they had this big long talk about what she believed in and where her hope was. When Mary came to him with the same thought on her mind, there's no discussion of resurrection. There's no big theological talk. You know what? That's where the, that's where the verses that Jesus wept. He didn't have a big long talk with her. He sympathized with her. He wept with her. And then he went and he rose her, uh, raised her brother from the dead. Now, if you know much about Mary and Martha, from we only have a little bit in the Bible about them, but Martha, you remember the story where Martha was busy in the kitchen and she was frustrated because Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and just soaking up time with him and wasn't really helping her. So she felt like all the work was on her shoulders. And you remember that story. And at that point, Jesus said to her, you know, Mary's doing the right thing. You're, you're worried and bothered about so many things, Martha. But we can see from that story and other stories where Martha um, was in charge of a feast, uh, where they had Jesus and a Pharisee and other people, um, that Martha had a very different personality than Mary. We have our personalities, we have our temperaments, we have our learning styles. We're all very different. Um, and Jesus knew that. He knew their hearts. He understood their thoughts. He knew that type A intellectual, get it done, organized Martha needed hope from a talk about the resurrection. He knew that that sensitive, emotional Mary needed someone who would just cry with her, who would just put their arm around her, who would just be in that moment with her. He gave them both a resurrection, which is what they both needed, but he approached them with such sensitivity. Another story that tells me that God knows your heart. God understands your needs. He, un he gets your personality, and he 
makes a point to meet you in the way that is most meaningful to you. There's another story that I'd like to look at, um, but I will preface it by saying that um, there are parts of the Bible that are more difficult and more challenging than other parts. There are stories in the Bible that I honestly kind of want to put my fingers in my ears and go la 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 until we get to the story where Jesus healed the lepers and Jesus asked the blind man what would you want what do you want me to do for you and Jesus raised from the dead and all those stories that so easily minister to my soul and, and wash over me and and mean so much to me but the Bible is raw and real and authentic and God doesn't hold anything back and there are some stories that are more difficult stories, and this is one of them. Um, we could probably do many talks to try and make sense of this story, but I want to look at this chapter in the Bible still in the context of what we're talking about, um, how God knows and understands people's hearts, and you can see that in how he responds to people. This is the story of Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu found in Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them as priests in the, in the tabernacle, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. This is one of those stories, again, with little detail, not, not much commentary, and you just, it kind of hits you in the face, and you have to put the rest of the Bible together with it for it to make sense, at least for me. So let's just look at this story a little bit and, and ask ourselves, who were Nadab and Abihu, and why was this moment um, a, way, a, a time in their lives when God responded this way? But there's more, so hold on. Um, Moses and Aaron were brothers, and they had sons. Moses had two sons. Aaron had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. So Nadab and Abihu were Moses' nephews. He was their uncle. They probably hadn't known him very well before the Exodus, I'm guessing, because he spent his life in the palace and then in Midian. Um, but Nadab and Abihu, if you look at what had gone on in their lives before this moment... Um, they were born in Egypt in slavery. They had experienced slavery in Egypt. They had lived through the Exodus. They had seen the plagues come through Egypt. They had seen the Red Sea part. They had seen this miraculous, they had walked through and lived this whole miraculous story of coming out of Egypt. They had drank the bitter water at Marah that Moses, through God's miracle, had turned into sweet water when it seemed like there was nothing to drink but bitter water. They had eaten the miracle of manna. They had seen it come day after day after day. They had experienced the miracle of the quail that God sent for them to eat. They had drunk water from a rock in Rephidim where there was no water, and they had seen the miracle where Moses struck the rock, and a whole, like, lake full of water came out, enough water to, to satisfy the thirst of all those people. He had been there for the war with the Amalekites, where they were losing, and his own father helped hold up Moses' arms, and they had watched, they had seen the battle turn, they had seen the power of God over and over and over again. They had sat 
at the foot of Mount Sinai. They had heard the thunder. They had seen the smoke. They had heard the voice of God speak the Ten Commandments. And then, beyond all that, experiencing God's glory and God's power and seeing who he was and what he could do, after the Ten Commandments were given at Mount Sinai, 70 people went with Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu up onto Mount Sinai. Everyone else was told not to touch the mountain or they would die. This group, including Nahab, Lilla, Nadab and Abihu, went up on the mountain and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. They saw God and ate and drank. This is a unique experience in the Bible. I don't fully understand it myself. I don't know what it means that they saw God, but they had an experience in God's presence that was more than anyone else in the Bible. That was unique. And they were in that group, Nadab, not their brothers, not Eleazar and Ithamar. Nadab and Abihu went with their dad and their uncle and 70 elders onto Mount Sinai. And they saw God. After experiencing all these miracles and seeing his power and glory, they sat and ate and drank in his presence and saw his throne in a way that nobody had. And then, beyond that, um, in Exodus 28, we see this, Then bring, yourself near, uh, bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aaron. And for Aaron's sons, make tunics. They were priests. They were made priests of God. They were elevated um, and given special roles closer to God beyond anyone else in Israel. Um, they went through a special consecration ceremony that takes a whole chapter in Leviticus 8 where they were clothed with their priestly garments in this very special ceremony. They were anointed with oil. Moses made special offerings for them. The offerings of the blood was put on their, their head, their earlobe, their thumb, and their toe. All of them was consecrated to God and then they sat in God's presence in the sanctuary for seven days before they started their own ministry as priests. And then they were there. Uh, they were there when the tabernacle was finished and when they, they started the ministry of priesthood and they made the first sacrifices as priests. It says Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them and he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all people and fire came down from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This was holy fire. This was fire from God, not fire that anyone had started on earth. It was part of his presence. It was the fire that stayed on the altar all the time. It was not strange fire. It was the holy fire that they were supposed to put in their incense and take into the sanctuary. It was an expression of God's presence. And they were there to see 
see all this. You and I have never seen anything like this. They saw the glory of God come down again, like they'd already seen Sinai. They'd already seen his throne on Sinai. They saw this again, and they saw fire come from the presence of God and ignite the uh, the sacrifice on the altar. They saw things, and ex- can you see how much of the glory of God they had seen? What they had experienced was awesome. And they still came to the tabernacle and were didn't care. <laughs> um, there are some who think, I don't, I don't know, but there are some who think because um, just after this, when God was talking to them about everything that happened, God says to Aaron, do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you when you come to the tent of meeting so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean. Some think that maybe they were drunk when they came to do this. um, Uh, minister in the tabernacle in the presence of God with these holy things. Nadab, this was not um, Nadab and Abihu's first moment. Do you see what I'm saying? This was something they did after experiencing God and seeing his glory and seeing his power in incredible and powerful ways. It was not the first time that God had made it clear that how people handled the symbols of salvation and the symbols of Jesus, the sacrifice and the Messiah, was very, very important. Like with Cain's offering, he couldn't accept Cain's offering because it was a bloodless offering. Um, He couldn't let Moses go into the promised land because when he struck the rock, he didn't obey the way God said to. And Corinthians makes it clear that that rock was a picture, was a symbol of Christ. And Christ only dies once, but he hit it twice. So when people have uh, been um, careless with the symbols of salvation, of, of redemption, of the Savior, God has always taken it very seriously. It's meant a lot to him. But from the rest of the Bible, if we want to put commentary on this story... Um, you can realize from the whole story of the Bible that God's judgment never comes before fully revealing his love and goodness, before a full revelation of his love and goodness. Judgment doesn't come. For example, he told Abraham not to touch the Amorites because their iniquity was not full yet. They still needed more revelation of his goodness and his love before he would judge them. Um, And we know from the rest of the Bible that God takes no pleasure in the death of sinners and first extends forgiveness and grace. We know that from the rest of the Bible. So because we know that's true about God, we know that that would have been true about him in this story. Even if as the story is written, it doesn't go into all those details. You see what I'm saying? So I'm just trying to give you a little bit of a picture of Nadab and Abihu and why God knowing their hearts, saw that this was the only way to respond to what they had done. They had crossed that line. He had revealed as much of himself as he could, and he knew their hearts, and he knew that he had to stop them before they poisoned the rest of Israel with their um, 
carelessness, with their rebellion, with whatever was going on in their minds and hearts. It doesn't say, but God knew what was going on with their minds and their hearts. And the reason I bring this up is because of what follows this story, because there's more in this chapter. If you keep going right after that experience with Nadab and Abihu, it says um, Moses talked to Eleazar and Ithamar, their two younger brothers. They were now, well, they were already in the role of priests. Maybe they had to step into their brother's positions. And Moses had told them to perform a certain sacrifice, and he had given them clear instructions that they were supposed to eat the sacrifice in the sanctuary. And here it goes on and says, But Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it had been burnt up. So he was angry with Aaron's surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it is most holy, and he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary, just as I commanded. Now, it will be the subject of a whole other talk to talk about the meaning of this ceremony and this sacrifice and why it was important that either blood went into the sanctuary or they took the flesh and ate it in the sanctuary. That's the subject of another talk. But it had been made clear to them and they messed up. Their brothers right before them had messed up the symbolism of the ceremony in the sanctuary. And then they, right after that, messed up the symbolism of the sacrifice and the ceremony in the sanctuary. But God's response to Eliezer and Ithamar was he had a little talk with Aaron about it. Aaron kind of brought up some stuff. And he said, okay, <laughs> very different, very different response than what had just happened to their brothers. <clears throat> it would be easy to just read the Nahab and, Nadab and Abihu story and say, oh my goodness, the lesson from this story is clearly that if I mess up, God will strike me, right? It's very easy. Satan can easily take our minds that way. But the lesson from Nadab and Abihu's story is not that God is waiting to strike you if you mess up. The lesson is that God knows people's hearts and we don't. He knows where they're at. He knows everything that has gone into who they are and why they're doing what they're doing. And we don't. Eleazar and Ithamar show the truth of Psalm 86.5 that says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. He was ready to forgive them because they were still able to receive mercy. And God is abundant in mercy to all who call upon you. It is too easy to read one tiny little piece of the Bible and extract a lesson from it without seeing it in the context of the whole. But ever since I was a teenager, my mom has been telling me, you have to see the verse in the context of the chapter. You have to see the chapter in the context of the book. And you have to see the book in the context of the Bible. Or you'll end up out in the weeds. You'll end up coming to conclusions that aren't actually real or true. One more story, you guys. And for this one, we have to get straight that this mountain has two names. Sometimes my little brain ugh, can't handle the fact that people and places have different names in the Bible, and it makes me confused. But this mountain has two names. 
Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same place. In Deuteronomy, we read that God made a covenant with Israel at Horeb. And in Exodus, we know that God gave Moses the tablets of the covenant on Mount Sinai. In Psalms, we read that Israel worshipped a molten calf at Horeb. And we know from Exodus that Israel worshipped a golden calf at Mount Sinai. This Mount Horeb was where Moses saw the burning bush. And it's called the mountain of God. Horeb, the mountain of God. Um, so just because our stories are going to, one is going to say Mount Sinai and one's going to say Mount Horeb, but they're the same place. God told Moses, bring the children of Israel back to this mountain to worship me. Horeb and Sinai are the same place. Okay. So in Exodus 19, when the children of Israel had left slavery in Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai and look how it describes their experience of the presence of God there. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. What kind of experience was this? This was a loud, shaking, quaking, smoke-filled, you know, this was a rock concert. This was a, you know. <clears throat> Why would God have met the people this way? They had just come out of a long time of living in Egypt. All of them had been born there. They had never known anything else but living in Egypt, surrounded by idolatry that was very impressive. I mean, you've seen Egypt, the big temples, the big idols, the powerful Pharaoh. Egypt existed for thousands of years. They're very powerful people. Seemed like their idols were really powerful. And they had been slaves there. They had been under the the the. Uh, the um, strength and power of these people. They had just come out. They're, they're in the wilderness. They're just kind of following a promise. But this God is kind of uh, new things Moses is bringing up. And it's been quite the experience for them. They've gone through the plagues. They've been told to leave. They, I mean, just imagine what it was like just to live through that. What did they need to know about God at that moment? They needed to know that he was bigger and better than any of the idols of Egypt. They needed to know that he had the strength and the power to, to take them, to fulfill his promise, to take them to the promised land. They needed to know that he was the Lord above all lords that they had ever known or seen in Egypt. But look at this next story. Many, many, many years later, someone else found themselves on this same mountain. This is the story of Elijah, just after Mount Carmel. Um, he had been through three and a half years of famine, of hiding for his life. Then he had been on Mount Carmel and had all that adrenaline rush of everything that happened on Mount Carmel. He thought he had turned everyone back to the Lord. And then he had had Jezebel um, raise her powerful fist at him again and say, tomorrow you'll be dead. It says he arose, um, and he was, he was depressed, he was exhausted, he was suicidal, he just wanted to die, he left his servant, 
and basically thought, uh, basically I'm going and I'll never see you again. And then an angel brought him some food. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. Many, many, many years earlier, God's presence had come down on that mountain for the children of Israel. And today, God's presence was coming down on that same mountain for little Elijah. And look what God's presence was like for him. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing or a still small voice, it says in some translations. At Sinai with the children of Israel, the Lord was in the fire. He was in the sound. He was in the earthquake. But when Elijah came on that mountain, depressed and discouraged and at a completely different place than the Israelites were, God met him in a completely different way. He was not in the fire. He was not in the earthquake. He was in the still, small voice. What do you think Elijah needed at that moment? Have you ever been depressed? Have you ever been suicidal? Is that when you need tough love? Is that when you need pushing hard? Is that when you need an earthquake? That's when you need a still, small voice. That's when you need the gentle blowing. That's when you need the reassurance. And God knew their hearts. He knew their thoughts. He knew his people. And he met each one of them exactly where they were at, with exactly what they needed, with a part of who he was that ministered to exactly what they were struggling with. That's what our God is like. The stories of Zacharias and Mary, Mary and Martha, Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar, the Israelites and Elijah, they all show us that God meets us individually, that he's big enough and loving enough and caring enough to know what's in your heart, to know what struggles you've been through. Nobody knows you like God does. God has been with you since the moment you were conceived. He knows everything that happened to your mother when she was pregnant with you. He knows everything that happened at your birth. He knows everything that happened to you when you were little. He knows everything that's gone into your psyche that has affected how you think and how you respond and how you feel today. God alone is the safest place because he knows you. He gets you. That's how God treats people, according to who you are and where you're at. And you don't have to put on a front for him. You don't have to wear a mask for him. You don't have to pretend for him. You can't. He already knows. But how does that affect how I treat people? I and you are not God. You and I do not have this characteristic. We cannot 
read thoughts. We cannot read minds. We do not know what has gone into someone's life experience. We do not know what struggles they're hiding in their hearts. So we cannot be the judges. We cannot be in God's place in people's lives. <coughs> and knowing this about God builds your ability to be able to be open with God because he already knows you're not hiding anything and to trust him because he loves to meet you knowing what has happened to your heart, knowing where you're at. He would love to meet you with grace and forgiveness and healing. And so today, may you learn to trust the God who knows your thoughts, understands your heart, and who meets you in the way you most need it. May you leave the judging to him and seek to treat others with tenderness and grace so you don't bruise a soul that God is working with. And may you live in the reality that the one who knows you best loves you most. <laughs>